Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And last week we talked about Anne Bonny, the pirate whose short career on the seas made her a lasting legend in uh, piracy history. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, before we get there, I want to ask you to come with me on a journey into the depths of my uh, various uh, lusts and perversions. Um, Listeners to the show may know from references here and there that I am an obsessive, unreconstructed opera queen. I use my title account to compare the performances of various German arias by sopranos with names like Gundula Janowitz and Anatomo Vasinto. I lurk on forums and listservs to trade and download bootleg MP3s of Eileen Farrell singing Ariadne of Naxos or Eleanor Staber singing the Strauss Four Last Songs. I vibrate when listening to Jesse Norman's recently released rendition of the final scene from Strauss's Salome. In a few days, I am taking a train to another city to hear a performance of a Czech opera about singing foxes. Of our perverse little set, the magnificent critic Wayne Kestenbaum once wrote in his book, The Queen's Throat, Opera, Homosexuality, and the Mystery of Desire, quote, the solitary operatic feast, the banquet for one, onanism through the ear. Taking an evening out of my life to listen to opera, I feel I am locked in the bathroom eating a quart of ice cream, that I have lost all my friends, that I am committing some violently antisocial act, like wearing lipstick to school. Here is the first ingredient, then, of faggot opera queendom. Qua Kestenbaum, the genre's great diva. First, this sense of shame. The greedy opera queen feels like a simpering schoolchild, feels stripped of the masculine accoutrements of gay sexual maturity, feels returned to a place in his own development and or in gay movement's development when the twanging vibrato of callus, or for that matter, piaf or garland, accompanied a thousand sad and lonely sighs in delicately furnished little apartments in Queens, presided over by obsessively dusting, well, Queens. We can go to the opera house in our leathers and be ready to hit the bars after, but for the moments we are there, we are in a kind of erotic thrall to the voice, but also in a thrall to an older and more embarrassing version of ourselves. You don't tell anyone at the bars that you just came from the opera. The mineshaft in the 1970s had to put up a sign in the dark rooms forbidding the discussion of Wagner, lest it trouble the patient's erections. <laughs> True story. The second ingredient here in opera queendom also comes from a Kestenbaum quote, and this is also from the book, The Queen's Throat. Quote, listeners love when opera dethrones or kills language. The regicide on these occasions is the revolutionary, pleasure-seeking, penetrated ear. Opera theory tells us that words master music, but we in our secret hearts know music's superiority. And this destruction of language, this reversal of hierarchy, makes opera a fit object for the enthusiasms of sex and gender dissidents. Operatic texts, Kestenbaum points out, are usually trivialities. This is true in most, but not all cases, on the show Here, for example, we talked about the austere poetry of Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, and Britten's works achieve a rare synthesis of text and music. But most opera texts feature servants hiding behind chairs, or grand ladies having fainting spells, or political intrigues involving offstage battles and improbable kings singing about triumph from the top of visibly uncomfortable horses. They feature spells of tuberculosis that seem to condemn their victims only to the ability to sing higher and louder. And in the case of Strauss's Egyptian Helen, they contain a role for a contralto tasked with playing, and I shit you not, an omniscient seashell. (laughs) The great soprano Eileen Farrell, a working-class Irish-American, always skeptical of the genre's pretensions and exclusions and excesses, once said of the particularly confusing plot of the opera La Giaconda, quote, 
As far as I'm concerned, all the librettos are pretty crazy. The funniest story of all is La Giaconda. In the first act, she's with her mother, and in the second scene, she can't find her mother, and then suddenly it's the fourth act, and she's ready to take the poison, and she suddenly remembers she still hasn't found her mother. Mom, hello, mom, snap out of it. That's pretty funny. (laughs) But when Farrell then opened her mouth to sing Jaconda's act for Aria Suicidio, or when Helen leaves the omniscient seashell behind to glide through the soaring aria at Zweite Brautnacht, the queens leave behind their seats and the other queens near them and rise up together as one mass into the music forgetting the improbable goings-on and sinking into a sound that destroys, that rises above, that queers language. Music masters words. Quote, Music is a holy flame tended only by the brave and true, like cherubim guarding a radiant throne. That is why one art is holier than all the others, and music is that holy art, sings the composer in Strauss's Ariadne of Naxos, summing up both the feeling that the queens have about the music and also exemplifying the degree to which an opera without its music is like a bird with clipped wings. It sounds slightly better in German and way better when it's sung. The third element of opera queendom is a kind of necrophiliac projection. In his book of poetry, Odes to Anna Maffo, Kestenbaum writes in a, in a poem, I think that Anna Maffo sings to this day in a second parallel mit, a hologram of the original projected in air where failing voices continue to thrive amidst a system of strange geysers. The husky-voiced Mafo was surely not the first or last singer to inspire feelings of intimacy in strange queers, nor was she the first who, long after her voice failed, continued to be a kind of projection object for gay men with a zeitgeist-related form of arrested development. Part of the thrill of operatic voices for queers, I think, is their sense of limitlessness, their ability to contain intense emotion, to seem so powerful they might exist forever. The separation of the body from the voice, the voice becomes godly, artificial, or perfect, spoken of in the third person as though it has volition independent of the singer's body and mind, is central here. Is that this is this is the sort of the main ingredient, and the idea that the voice could be projected out into some other universe and and be and and exist forever. When I'm in a good mood, I like to think that these three ingredients can combine into something charming, or at least something that can exist in mixed company, as I hope that I'm able to exist in mixed company. Um, But the subject of today's episode, the opera and film director, Franco Zeffirelli, neatly sums up what happens when all of these things combine together and go terribly wrong. When the diva worship turns into a misogynist manipulation of women as though they were Barbie dolls. When shame around sexual maturity turns into a combination of alleged sexual assault and public intervention on the side of the socially conservative forces that have made gay life a living hell for so many. When the necrophilia and submission to an earlier form of homosexual life and desire turn into a kind of decorative obsession that replaces any attempt to access artistic truth. Zeffirelli, born at a time when the last composers whose works still fill the grand opera repertory were dying, faced, like all practitioners of the operatic arts in the 20th century, a choice between making living theater or dead 10-ton museum pieces. He chose the museum piece approach and in so doing did tremendous artistic damage. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. I know very little about Zeffirelli. I mean, I, I, I think I watched Romeo and Juliet when I was at school, and um, my local cinema growing up was called Zeffirelli's, but that is basically the extent of it. But it sounds like um, we're, in, we're in for like a an examination, as we sometimes get, of a very specific and recognisable type. And also a romp through the various um, political, artistic, and cultural movements of Italy in the 20th century. Uh, fascism, the response to fascism, and sort of what happened in the late 20th century. So Franco Zeffirelli was born in Florence in 1923. 
His mother, Alaide Garozzi, was a fashion designer, and his father, Ottorino Corsi, was a wool merchant who was descended from relatives of Leonardo da Vinci. Both of them were upper class, and both of them were married to other people. Um, at that time, fatherless and familyless Italian children were named according to a letter which changed every year. That year's letter was Z, and his mother originally wanted to name him Zefiretti, after the aria Zefiretti Lusingheri, or um, Calm Breezes, from Mozart's opera Idomeneo. But it was written down wrong, and so he became Zefirelli. Wow, okay. His mother first sent him off to live in the country, and then two years later, when her husband died, she raised him. Until then, she herself died of tuberculosis. Of this period, Zeffirelli had few memories. I knew my father only in flashes, he told the New York Times in a 2009 interview. I remember this gentleman came, especially at night. I woke up and saw this shadowy band naked in bed with my mother. When his mother died of tuberculosis, he went to live with a cousin of his father. At the age of eight, he was going to a school for young, artistically talented people in Florence, and he opened his 1986 autobiography with this startling story from his childhood. I can see myself aged about eight or nine at my first school in Florence. I'm coming down the big staircase after classes are over, and I recognize all the parents and servants waiting outside to pick up the children. No one has come for me because I live with my aunt only 200 yards from the school, and it is easy for me to walk home by myself. But on this day, a woman across the street seems to be looking at me in a strange way. I start to go home, but very quickly realize she is following me down the narrow medieval street that leads from the school. She is muttering something, which I can't make out. Then I realize she is saying, Bastardino, little bastard, you little bastard. You'll find out. Don't worry. Someday you'll find out. So that was his father's wife who had come to harass him. Here's another charming story from Franco's youth. Um, he was in uh, his first elementary school class. And they were asking each student to stand up and uh, name themselves, name their mother and name their father. And um, he was, of course, the last one. Uh, his last name is Zefirelli, which is not a name that anyone's heard of before. And then uh, doesn't know his father's name. And everyone kind of uh, laughs at him, the teacher included. So, yeah, pretty hard upbringing. It was at this time when Zeffirelli was about eight that fascism was fully in power in Italy. A year before Zeffirelli's birth, Mussolini had become prime minister after engineering democratic conflict and using thugs to overwhelm democracy. Between 1925 and 1927, with the enthusiastic support of the industrialist class of whom Zeffirelli's parents were a part, Mussolini abolished all restrictions on his personal power and built up a police state. In 1926, all other political parties were abolished. The young Zeffirelli uh, would remember this time as one where the Catholic Church had saved him from fascism. He remembered joining a youth group in middle school uh, where he said, his friends and I were bored by the fascist marches and speeches. We preferred the Catholic club with football in the old cloisters and ping pong, which I still love today. Our favorite activity was bicycle trips at weekends. I can remember the friars hitching up their soutanes and pedaling away with us to the hill villages along the Arno Valley. Uh, so this is a view of the Catholic Church in which it saved him from fascism, which is a questionable view of the Catholic Church, to say the least. Mm. Um, here is where we're going to have our first of several content warnings in this episode. Um, this is a content warning for the frank discussion of uh, sexual assault and childhood sexual abuse. Um, and those are themes that are going to come back through the episode. So if those are not themes about which you wish to hear, this is probably not the episode of our show that's for you. Um, but from the 2022 perspective, hearing that story in his autobiography about friars hitching up their soutanes may call forth an instinctive twinge of concern from listeners. 
1986 autobiography, Zeffirelli said not a word about uh, sex or sexuality. He didn't come out of the closet until the mid-1990s. But in 2006, he ended up acknowledging having been sexually abused by priests at this time in his childhood. But he did so in his own unique way. Uh, he gave an interview to The Guardian in which he said, quote, I feel sorry for the priest. Sexual experiences are not always bad for little boys. I don't think they make you homosexual. Sexual choice is made for you early on in life anyway. If you like girls, you like girls. Oh, God. Yeah. A lot to unpack there. Um, about uh, cycles of abuse and, and about how different people understand things. I mean, you never, one never wants to sort of shake someone by the shoulders and scream at them that they should be more traumatized by something than they were. Um, but I think especially in the context of a sort of lifelong adoration for the Catholic church and a lifelong social conservatism, um, this is obviously a, this is a response I think that's quite indicative of a lot of, a lot of ways of thinking about things. So Zeffirelli was raised by older British people living in Florence. This is a time in his life that he memorialized in a film called Tea with Mussolini. And it was only really when the older British people were forced to leave Italy that Zeffirelli, who was then a student at the Liceo Artistico, uh, began to fear that war would reach Italy and destroy the country's cultural heritage. With his best friend Carmelo, he made a tour of the whole country and its many cultural wonders, staying in monasteries, visiting churches, um, he lived through the bombing of Naples with a 100-degree fever and remembered seeing, quote, fire bursting out of everywhere, a vision of hell. I passed out and someone carried me back to my bed. The two of them then spent a week in Positano in the sun among people he remembered as, quote, peasants still wearing their traditional costumes with everything fresh and wholesome, as if we had somehow been transported into the Garden of Eden. Maybe it was this experience that made him fear and distrust the modern in his work that made him fill his stages with extras and traditional costumes an attempt to recover this Eden where he swam with his young friend or lover, quote, in the deep blue sea and lazed on the rocks, selfishly determined to enjoy what we saw as the last days of peace in our life. After starting at the university in Florence later that fall, the young Zeffirelli was finally drafted into the Italian army under the threat of being shot. Instead, to his enormous credit, he ran away to the mountains and joined the partisans. That's a, <clears throat> that's a twist I didn't see coming. Yeah. Um, so after being captured on a return to Florence and interrogated, he was almost sent to be tortured and murdered at a local fascist camp. But after his father's intervention, the sentence was changed to service in a slave labor camp run by the German army. But amidst the collapsing fascist state, the bureaucracy failed. And so Franco was never actually deported and instead escaped the city of Florence and attempted to find another group of partisans or allied soldiers to join. This was right when the front of Italy being uh, liberated from the south had reached just south of Florence. Uh, he wrote that he jumped into a ditch with some friends um, to hide from advancing German tanks. Quote, after what seemed like a lifetime of noise and fire, the German tanks withdrew and others with strange markings replaced them. After more noise, the terrible silence returned, leaving us even more confused. Had we crossed the lines or more correctly, had the lines crossed us? Some of my friends thought we were still on the German side and that the fighting would flare up again. The, su the suspense made me restless, and although my friends thought it was still too dangerous to move, I jumped out and started to hurry on. I can't stay here, I called back. I'd rather die than stay here a minute longer. They did not follow, and I found myself wandering alone down a narrow pass. The birds were singing, and there was an air of childish innocence about my strolling along in shorts with my hair. I headed south and climbed a small hill with a clump of oak trees surrounded by red and yellow flowers. Then I heard a voice. I stopped motionless. 
The undergrowth rustled. Soldiers. It sounded like soldiers in the bushes. I could see the glint of metal and quickly raised my arms above my head, took a deep breath, and began to walk towards them. Are you English? I shouted finally, realizing that just to speak the language was a declaration, and that if they were Germans I was finished. There was a long silence, and then one of them said, No! I closed my eyes and died a thousand deaths. My legs went weak and I could barely keep my arms up. A soldier strode up to me and thrust his face close to mine. Through a mask of simulated fury, he hissed, We're not fucking English, we're fucking Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is how Franco joined the 1st Battalion of the Scotch Guards, for whom he served as an interpreter uh, for a period of about a year. Uh, At this time, with the fighting having reached us south of Florence, it was feared that the Nazis, having been defeated in Rome after both sides agreed to spare the historic city, would make the center of Florence the front lines and destroy it. The Germans did end up blowing up all of the bridges on the Arno with the exception of the Ponte Vecchio and a significant number of historic buildings. After Florence was won by the Allies without much more destruction on top of that, Zeffirelli was sent off to a villa outside Siena where he was put in charge of troop entertainments, alongside a magnificently named British army captain named Dickie Buckle, who told him all about theater culture in London. Upon returning to Florence as the war drew to a close, he began to work with the U.S. Army Battalion that was trying to save some of the damaged old buildings, and worked closely with Frederick Hart, who was the officer put in charge of doing this. And so again, here we see the beginning of this love for a kind of extravagant realism and historicism and a fear of modernity and change. (laughs) Zeffirelli went with an American army captain to see Mussolini's dead body, and when he returned to Florence was greeted suspiciously by partisans who thought he was a fascist and interrogated him. And this began a lifelong mistrust of the political left. Zeffirelli's experience working with damaged buildings led him to take a job as the assistant of a scenic painter at a theater in Florence. And it was there that he would meet one of his life's great loves and influences, the director Lucchino Visconti. Visconti, born in 1906 as the Count of Lonate Pozzolo, was a stage and film director who began as a gritty neorealist before turning towards highly detailed realist epics about decaying nobles and the wealthy. The world of decaying nobles and the wealthy was one he knew well. He was raised in a palazzo in Milan and took music lessons as a boy with Puccini and Toscanini before joining the Communist Party during the war, although he did also collaborate by directing films under the regime in a studio ran by Mussolini's son. When the two met in 1949, Visconti had the year before directed the film La Terra Trima, the story of exploited working-class fishermen in Sicily that, like many neorealist films, featured non-professional actors and a hard-hitting social message. In Florence, Visconti was directing an adaptation of Steinbeck's Tobacco Road. Uh, Zeffirelli was unable in his 1986 autobiography to stick in a little dig about how Visconti's communism was actually related to a desire to be a fascist. Zeffirelli writes, quote, We tend to forget that much of European fascism was originally a revolutionary left-wing movement, which is, of course, one of the sort of big lies about 20th century fascism. Um, But after volunteering to go look for a non-professional actress on the streets of Florence to play a role in Visconti's adaptation, the two began to hit it off. While Zeffirelli is discreet in his autobiography, written when he was still in the closet, the two would end up being a couple for at least three years. Visconti was attracted by the talented young man. Yes, Zeffirelli was a hot twink in his youth, and so decided to make him his live-in personal assistant while the two set out to perform Italy's first staging of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire. And yes, that is the gayest sentence I've ever said on this show. Um, is he, you know, your live-in personal assistant for Italy's first staging of Tennessee Williams' streetcar named Desire? Uh, 
So Zeffirelli would spend the next two years doing all of the sets and costumes for Visconti productions on stage and screen. Lucchino, he wrote in his autobiography, showed me the world of creativity in theater and films, how to conceive an idea and how to bring together a whole world of culture that could embody it. In other words, how to direct. Visconti also introduced him to some of his fabulous set, including Salvador Dali, who was going to do a surrealist set for a Visconti production of Shakespeare's As You Like It. The young Zeffirelli was at one point sent off to Paris with three letters of introduction, one to meet the actor Jeanne Marais, one to meet the writer, poet, and director Jean Cocteau, and one to meet Coco Chanel. Not bad. Um, Marais, Cocteau's ex, invited Zeffirelli to the opening of the Lido, um, and then later that day, uh, Mademoiselle Chanel, who was not able to work at the time because of her recent sleeping with Nazis uh, business, greeted him thusly. Um, he enters her atelier and she was screaming at her assistant. This is now quoting from the autobiography. You cow, she was screaming. You don't frighten me, you little bitch. And there suddenly was Chanel standing in the doorway just as I had imagined her in one of her tailored outfits with hat and pearls, but altogether unexpectedly waving a riding crop and matching her friend word for word in foul-mouthed abuse. Whore, bitch, cow. The words flew back and forth until suddenly they both collapsed into a fit of giggles, and I realized the whole thing had been a wild performance. I quickly closed my gaping mouth and tried not to look like the country boy come to town. Dismissing the incident, Chanel walked over and held out her hand for the letter. So you're Lucino's little friend. His associate, I said, his assistant. She raised an eyebrow. That night, uh, Zeffirelli did go to the opening of the Lido, but Marais was a no-show, and Zeffirelli was seated near an attractive couple from Argentina and then lost memory and woke up bruised in his hotel room. In the autobiography, he claims the couple was heterosexual. Uh, sure, Franco. Um, but anyway, Chanel warned him away from Marais, and then uh, the two of them became friends, and together they uh, had some fun with fellow bad gay Andre Gide, and Zeffirelli was sent back to Florence with a volume of 12 signed Matisse Prince, courtesy of Mademoiselle Chanel. But Visconti ended up having a nasty side when his protege started to try to direct independently. Uh, at Franco's first independent theater staging, uh, Visconti organized and led a clack of booing audience members. Um, and this was the end, uh, beginning of the end of the two men's relationship. Understandably. Yes, although although they ended up, I mean, they would they were sort of frenemies for a long time, as you'll hear in this next stage uh, of his career. They were often in the same places, kind of working with one another, competing but being courteous. Okay. And so Zeffirelli would turn to opera. Here was a place where a lush realist style, one attentive to the laws of stage physics, where each action engendered a plausible reaction, was in the nineteen fifties a genuine stylistic innovation. Opera directing has always been somewhat of a dark art. It's a difficult thing to pull off. Unlike on the legitimate stage, opera singers are cast mainly for their ability to sing particular kinds of roles. A Turandot, for example, is not cast with a 13-year-old princess, but an adult woman in her 40s or 50s, with a voice that can let loose the tidal waves of sound in the upper register needed to be heard over and through the orchestra. A Violetta must first navigate the coloratura of the first act and the fuller lyric singing of the second and third, before she can think about looking convincingly consumptive. And I do want to put in a side note here that the popular conception of opera as a haven for performers who don't otherwise fit narrow physical types is somewhat overstated. 
um, especially recently, singers like Deborah Voigt and Tara Arat, Catherine Lueck, and Jesse Norman um, have talked about fighting body shaming uh, from nasty comments about weight in reviews to losing roles to the intersection in Jesse Norman's case of weight and race as kind of axes of discrimination. Um, so what I'm talking about here is not, oh my God, it's so hard to make fat people look like they're in love, um, but instead that singers are singers first and actors second um, and fewer of them. And this also has to do with rehearsal time and training in an extremely busy career, um, end up developing the ability to communicate with their bodies and to create convincing theater. Okay, yeah. Um, but one of these singers, um, like the transcendent Valtrad Meyer or Carita Matila or Jesse Norman, um, who did have that ability, was the legendary Maria Callas. Um, Zeffirelli met La Callas backstage at La Scala, uh, one day after she had ripped her costume to shreds 24 hours before the dress rehearsal of Wagner's Parsifal and insisted she would only go on as the witch Kundry if a new one was made. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, Maria Callas is just about the last person who ever got away with behaving like that. Um, True diva. Um, the first meeting was not auspicious. Um, Zeffirelli often conceived of himself as a kind of diva Svengali, someone who could transform a woman who is not yet possessed of the kind of visual fabulosity to accompany her voice into someone who was. And this, of course, is a kind of misogyny, gay men playing with women like life-size Barbie dolls. Um, and so be warned that this is going to be one of the first description of women in this episode that's going to be not great. So uh, he meets uh, Callis at La Scala. We were presented to this very plump Greek-American woman with a terrible New York wine allied to a rather prim matronly manner. She sounded awful and looked worse. She wore a black tailored outfit so tight that it showed her ample hips and bosom and topped it off with a Raphael-style velvet hat. Everything seemed to be too big. Eyes, nose, mouth, and her legs were hairy on top of everything else. Then, aware that she was being judged and found wanting and being quick to protect his protege, the conductor Tullio Serafin said, Come on, Maria, let's make some music. The old man sat at the piano and started to play an aria from La Traviata. I closed my eyes because I have always imagined Violetta as a frail lady and just didn't wish to be disillusioned. Yet when Callas began to sing, she suddenly was La Dame Camellia. The strange thing was that she didn't try to play it lightly as if she were a frail consumptive. She sang with everything she had and it worked. The next day I sent Maria Callas some flowers and what was almost a love letter. Okay. So Visconti, um, who at this time, this is when Visconti and Zeffirelli are in their sort of frenemy situation, um, began to direct Callas in a series of spectacular productions. Um, and Zeffirelli would then often get the sort of second, the second level production. Um, Visconti, one mem memorable Scala season opened with a Visconti Callas Vestale and continued with a Zeffirelli Callas Elisir d'Amore. Um, and this year around 1955 was when Callas made a transformation into a conventional beauty um, and lost an enormous amount of weight. Um, this is something that Franco Zeffirelli actually took credit for um, in a kind of fucked up way. Um, once again, the idea that this is like, the idea that it is the director's job not to help singers find their way towards a characterization or um, create living theater, but instead to kind of be a diva Svengali and like get people to change their bodies. Yeah. Um, Visconti and Zeffirelli were always fighting about rehearsal time. Um, this was also around the time that Leonard Bernstein would conduct 
Maria Callas in a Lucchino Visconti directed La Sonambula, which is another extremely gay sentence and the source of some very fun affair rumors about Bernstein, Zeffirelli and Visconti and all of the above. Um, Zeffirelli ended up displacing Visconti as Callas's best friend and best gay. I know your heart, he told her once. I know you're not the bitch you pretend to be and would direct her in some of her famous triumphs, including a La Traviata in Dallas that I want to talk about. I want to quote from uh, Zeffirelli describing what he wanted to do to Traviata in order to get into a discussion about his style. Um, so La Traviata is an opera about a Parisian courtesan named Violetta who is ill and who uh, falls in love with a guy and gives everything up, but then uh, he is convinced by his family that it would be too shameful to be with her and so then he leaves her, and then he comes back on her deathbed, but it's too late, and she dies of tuberculosis. Um, classic opera plot. Um, yeah. So here we go. This is Zeffirelli on Traviata. I was sure that I had something to add to Traviata. I'd been going to productions of the opera all my life, and I'd always had an instinctive feeling that this was my opera. One thing that always annoyed me was the way that so vivid a piece could be dragged out and made boring. The usual thing is to have four locations— Violetta's house, the house in the country, the soiree in Paris, and Violetta's bedroom, with three intervals between them. But I could tell from the music, the great crash that heralds the party scene, that Verdi didn't want any break between the country and their return to Paris, that acts two and three should be run together without an interval. This would mean elaborate stage machinery, and having got it, I reckoned, why not stop there? Why not have nine, even ten situations? Violetta's bedroom her dining room, the salon, the countryside, the country home, the gambling room, the ballroom, back to the gambling room, another part of the ballroom and the bedroom. Rapid, almost cinematic movement. Because of the constraints of singing and the limited acting abilities of many performers, opera is often far too static. But here was a way of opening up the action. So this idea of working closely with singers on convincing acting, plus using stage technology to create a shifting, realist, cinematic action, became the Zeffirelli hallmark. In an age not far off from a time when opera productions lasted forever and touring divas would wear their own gowns instead of appropriate costumes, this was a big change, and this was a big step towards artistic seriousness. But later, we'll, be in, we'll begin to see this style begin to curdle into a parody of itself, especially in comparison with other artistic advances in operatic interpretation and production. In 1959, uh, Zeffirelli was uh, invited to the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden to direct a new... Uh, debuting Australian soprano in uh, an opera called uh, Lucia Lammermoor. It's an adaptation of uh, Sir Walter Scott's uh, Lucy of Lammermoor. And um, went into the dressing room to meet her. And here we have another um, another one of these kind of uh, divas Bengali misogyny moments. Um, and so here he is once again with the conductor Tullio Serafin backstage at Covent Garden meeting the great soprano Joan Sutherland for the first time. Quote, Come and meet our diva, Seraphin said, leading me through the streets of Covent Garden. You might decide to go away again when you see her. I was too enraptured by my surroundings to be worried about what he was saying, and it was only when we got to the rehearsal room at the opera house that I saw what he meant. Before us was a stout, awkward, badly-dressed woman with a cold. My heart sank. Franco, said Seraphin, this is Joan Sutherland. Seeing my look of dismay, he quickly told her to join him at the piano. To my amazement, it was Seraphin and Maria all over again. Not the same voice, but certainly the same miracle the awkward person, and the divine singing. I saw at once why I had been brought in. Seraphin knew I was young and ambitious enough to try anything. Now, it's one thing to say that someone might need some acting lessons and some training in theatrical presence before making a major international stage debut, 
but it's quite another thing to conceive of that awkwardness entirely in physical terms. My aim with Joan, he wrote in the autobiography, was to make something of her, and he intended to do so with, quote, a flattering high-waist dress. When describing the applause and Callis's compliments that followed the premiere, he does so as though he and his dress had created Sutherland's success as opposed to her extru- truly extraordinary vocal and musical talent. There's this very strange form of sort of gay male misogyny at work, which is like both this like idolization or like almost like reifications, like this godlike form of these women as figures, but in reality, like as actual people, as women, like this sense of like quite abject disgust with their bodies. Absolutely. And I think that really goes along with that thing that I was talking about opera queens in the beginning, this separation of the voice from the person. Yeah. Right. Like the voice is the godly thing. And the person is always disappointing. And so you need some fabulous diva Svengali to kind of do you up in some way so that you won't be disappointing. Yeah. Like it's, it's really, it's actually really fucked up. Um, so the last of the big Zeffirelli Callis triumphs, um, Callis ended up losing her voice relatively young, was a 1964 production of Tosca in London. And the second act of this Tosca was filmed for live television broadcast. And this is, I think, one of the best places to see the strengths of the Zeffirelli operatic style in their fullness, a lush sweeping realism of plausible action and reaction in a grand and spectacular setting that enhances the music drama. And there's a link to look at this performance in the show notes if anyone is curious to see it. Zeffirelli had always been fascinated by the English theater. Remember the whole situation with the Scottish guards and the young Zeffirelli grilling Dickie Buckle about the English theater. And so at this time, he turned towards theater directing in the UK. At the Old Vic, he directed a celebrated production of Romeo and Juliet, starring a young actress named Judi Dench. And in 1967, was hired to direct a film of The Taming of the Shrew, starring Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni. But um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton heard the news and ended up plunking down a million dollars to fund the production. And so they starred in it and ended up being a big hit. A year after that, Zeffirelli directed a filmed version of Romeo and Juliet, one which departed from his Old Vic production. Again, leaning into the combination of contemporary techniques and realist traditionalism, Zeffirelli presented the play in a naturalistic style of spoken dialogue using actual young unknown actors to play the parts. The effect was to focus on the love story and to present the play as a kind of middle-brow drama and tragedy. The film critic Roger Ebert described the result as, quote, the most exciting film of Shakespeare ever made, because it has the passion, the sweat, the violence, the love, and the entertainment in the most immediate terms I can imagine. It is a deeply moving piece of entertainment, and that is possibly what Shakespeare would have preferred. Always before, we have had actors in their 20s or 30s or even older reciting Shakespeare's speeches to each other as if it were the words that mattered. They do not, as anyone who has proposed marriage will agree. Often enough, one cannot even remember what was said at moments of great emotion. The words are outpourings of the soul, end quote. It is a very good film. So Zeffirelli interviewed hundreds of young actors before settling on the final pair, uh, Leonard Whiting and Olivia Hussey. Um, you'll be shocked to know that uh, when he first met Olivia Hussey, he had some things to say about how she looked. Quote, <laughs> I had seen Olivia Hussey early on in the tests. She had some talent, but she was unfortunately overweight, clumsy looking and bit her nails constantly. Hardly the delicate Juliet I dreamt of. My first choice was a really beautiful girl who stood out because of her sensational hair, a golden cascade that was her best feature. I called her back a month later for a second test, but when she walked in, my heart sank. The unisex era was just dawning, and she had had her golden locks trimmed to look like a boy's. 
I was almost in tears, not merely because I had lost my Juliet, but also because she had lost her chance of a lifetime. When I asked her why she'd done it, all she could say was because her sister had. She begged me to let her wear a wig, but I knew she could never cope with the role in such an artificial way. Um, and then he ended up uh, in desperation, he writes, summing back some of the ones I had rejected. And that was how I had stumbled on the amazing transformation of Olivia Hussey. She was a new woman having lost weight dramatically. Her magnificent bone structure was becoming apparent with those wide expressive eyes and her whole angular self. Okay. So once again, there's this, this A, profound misogyny. And B, we see, I think, the beginnings here of like realism gone far too far. Like she, like the actress can't wear a wig, and the important thing about the actress was the hair. Yeah, like it's yeah. all visual. It's so it, it's so so superficial. Um, so the film ended up being a huge success. Um, it was finished for a budget of one million dollars and grossed fifty million. But this film was also the site of the first documented allegation of sexual assault against Zeffirelli. And these accusations um, and allegations would follow him for the rest of his career working in opera, um, although during his lifetime, they were rarely aired beyond gossip. Um, Bruce Robinson, the actor Bruce Robinson, was hired to play the role of Benvolio and alleged that he was sexually assaulted by the director on the first night of shooting and would later base a kind of uh, lecherous older character in a film that he directed on Zeffirelli. Was that um, Uncle Monty in With Nell and I? It is Uncle Monty in With Nell and I. Uh, one of the great uh, British characters. So um, now we're going to pause a bit and talk a bit about Zeffirelli's pattern of alleged sexual assault um, uh, through his career. Um, and again, uh, this is a moment where if this is not something that you would like to hear, a kind of detailed description from uh, someone who alleges that he was sexually assaulted um, about how that went down, um, this is a great point to turn this episode off. But... Um, his pattern of alleged sexual assault was described by the actor Jonathan Sheikh, I think, uh, Sheck, um, in a People magazine article written in 2018 and published just before the director dies. Um, and so now I'm going to read an extended quote from Sheck's words, and these describe uh, events that he alleges occurred in 1992. Quote, Franco is incredibly charming. He was trying to seduce me under the guise of teaching me from the start. In Rome, he took us to the Vatican. He walked us to places where no one could go. We would be on these sets, the most amazing places in Italy, with massive crews, incredible scenery. So I felt blessed, but then Franco would drink. He would drink to extremes and become very aggressive and abusive. Not just to me. I remember standing up for some of the young girls that he was mean to. But he had a whole different agenda for me, and I felt it. Almost every day, Franco would say, I need to be with you. We filmed all over Italy, and at one point we were in a chateau, and he would come to my door, knock on my door late at night. But I kept it locked. I would literally put stuff, chairs and things, in front of it. I could hear him coming. During the day, he would say things like, I'm coming up to see you tonight. And I would say, I'm not okay with that, Franco. It's not okay. At the same time, Franco was verbally abusive. It got to the point where he made me feel like I couldn't act. I couldn't do anything right. I couldn't speak right. I couldn't move right. Everything I did was wrong. So I felt beaten down. Then one night, I think it was when we were at a hotel in Sicily and my co-star wasn't there. He told me he was coming to my room. This time he had managed to get a key. I was in bed sleeping and he let himself into the bedroom and he got beside my bed and was over the top of me on the side of the bed as I awoke. He got in my face. There was a moment where I was telling him no and he told me, we have to. I remember his breath smelling of scotch. And this is the whole thing and you hear it from the women who are opening up now about their own experiences with abuse. 
there's a moment where even though you're taught to be charming and have sex appeal as an actor, a line is crossed and everything changes. When someone crosses that line, when someone preys on you, there's a panic that sets in. That's what Franco did. He crossed that boundary and I felt as though I left my body. He molested me in my bed, end quote. Oh God, that's horrible. Um, and so that's an extended quote again from the actor Jonathan Scheck. Um, when this allegation was made, uh, Zeffirelli's adopted son, Pippo, uh, strenuously denied the allegations, uh, but they were corroborated by the actor Justin Vetrano, who uh, also alleged that Zeffirelli assaulted him in 1991 and described a very similar pattern. Um, there were also rumors um, that regard Zeffirelli's uh, conduct in opera houses that have circulated for a long time, um, but um, those those aren't confirmed, and so we're not going to describe them in any kind of detail. Um, I also want to make it clear on this show, when we talk about um, things that are alleged, we don't do that in order to discredit survivors. We do that in order to um, not get sued. So um, I find these to be very credible allegations. I'm not calling them allegations in order to um, make people think that I think this didn't happen, uh, but I'm just... They were never proven in a court of law, and so I'm uh, describing them as allegations, although I find them to be enormously credible ones. It was well before all of this in 1964 that Zeffirelli would first begin his association with New York's Metropolitan Opera. That year, he directed a production of Verdi's Falstaff, which is a comedy based on Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor, um, and this was received by critics as a huge update of the house's performance standards. The New York Times wrote, it is a completely literal set for Falstaff that seems solidly rooted on the stage. As a stage director, Mr. Zeffirelli is equally literal. He keeps the action moving along traditional lines, handles stage patterns logically, and has worked out every detail to maximum effect. But two years later at the Met, Zeffirelli had his first major failure as a stage director, a failure that would end up defining a lot of flaws in his art that only became more and more glaring as his career progressed. He was hired to direct a new production of a new opera, Antony and Cleopatra by the composer Samuel Barber that would open the new Metropolitan Opera House, starring Justino Diaz and Leontine Price. Zeffirelli ordered up mile-wide hoop skirts and sets that used every inch of the new house's technical capabilities. Um, so now, Hugh, I actually want to send you a picture of Leontine Price in her Antony and Cleopatra costume, because I would like you to respond and to describe it to our viewers. Oh my god! That is incredible. Isn't that amazing? What is that headpiece? It's, uh, she sells seashells by the seashore and has affixed many of them to her head. And there was a second headpiece, which is potentially even better, um, which, I'll ne which, which I will show you now. Hold on. That, that plunging corset, like it's like- Pre Prepare for headpiece head number two. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. This is fabulous. And uh, yeah, um, but she looks the, amazing. She does look amazing. And she also sang uh, amazingly. Uh, anyone who is interested, you can hear her sing some of the arias from this, from this piece um, online. Uh, they're really, they're really great. Here's a, here's a full color version too, of that last outfit for you to, for you to take a look at. You really get a sense of the eye makeup. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, sh that sheer fabric, incredible. You have to put a link to these in the show notes. They're incredible. I will. Um, 
But uh, so Zeffirelli writes in his autobiography, and as you can see from the sort of mammoth scale of these costumes, um, quote, given the subject and scale of the occasion, I assumed that Barber was planning to compose something like Aida, and I was all set to rise to the occasion with mammoth sets, a vast cast, and sumptuous costumes, the sort of spectacle that would honor such an important event in America's cultural life. I was happily planning all sorts of wonders with the extraordinary machinery that I had watched being installed. But the problems ended up being many. The revolving stage machinery around which the whole thing was planned broke during rehearsals, and so entire uh, armies full of extras and several live elephants had to be reset and restaged. Um, during the dress rehearsal, Leontine Price got trapped inside a pyramid before her big aria, uh, and on opening night, the critics were vicious. Um, Although Zeffirelli claims in his memoirs that the artistic problems came from a lack of understanding about the scale of the work, given that he had also worked on the libretto, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so here we can start to see where this kind of lush realism can go wrong when the main agenda item is to create a set and costumes instead of to present credible stage action. The set and costumes can then end up overwhelming mm. anything else. And when it goes wrong, then it goes really wrong. Yeah, overcoding and also just re this reliance upon the spectacle. Yeah. In the 1970s, Zeffirelli directed a series of lush Catholic epics that were mostly endorsed by the church, despite offending some traditional Catholics because they had nudity in them. Um, but he was a very devout uh, conservative Catholic his whole life. Uh, when Martin Scorsese directed the film The Last Temptation of Christ, in which Jesus is depicted having a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene, Zeffirelli had this to say, quote, the Jewish cultural scum of Los Angeles are always spoiling for a chance to attack the Christian world, end quote. Mm. Okay, fucking hell. Um, now, at this time, something was happening in the world of opera directing. A new artistic movement was gaining steam, starting at the Bayreuth Festival, where long rehearsal periods and the need to present only the same Wagner operas over and over combined to create the desire to present opera in a radically different way. Already in the 1950s and 1960s, Bayreuth had attempted to move beyond the Nazi-coded cultural imagery of the Wagner canon with things like horned helmets and spears and dirndls by presenting opera on radically spare sets using color and light and draped Star Trek-style clothing to evoke a timeless space of myth and fantasy. But in 1976, for the 100-year anniversary of The Ring, the festival did something even more daring. They invited the conductor Pierre Boulez, who years earlier at the Darmstadt Contemporary Music Festival had called for the destruction of all of Europe's opera houses in favor of the new to conduct the piece. And he engaged a stage director, a young French Marxist named Patrice Chereau, who inaugurated a new kind of operatic interpretation. Instead of presenting the Ring Cycle's characters as gods and demons, Chereau created a dramaturgical concept based on George Bernard Shaw's reading of the piece as an allegory of capitalism. Here, the gods were late 19th century aristocrats. The Rhine was dammed by hydroelectric power. At the end of the piece, when Brunhilde redeems the world by throwing herself into the flames of Valhalla, the entire chorus, dressed as then contemporary proletarians, turns to stare at the audience, and the piece ends with them in silence and the curtain open, having become the agent of history, staring at the audience as if to say, and you're next. Initially very controversial, the staging became legendary and is available to see on YouTube and inaugurated a kind of opera staging called Rigitheata, or Director's Theater, in which radical dramaturgical concepts and changes to the piece's intended staging are almost de rigueur in artistically ambitious German and French opera houses. In Italy and the English-speaking world, tastes have remained more conservative, and this is also a function of the houses in those places being more dependent on private donors as opposed to generous state funding. 
faced with the the artistic challenge of director's theater, Zeffirelli began to harden his conservatism. If once his stagings had contained some thrilling contemporary impulse, the desire to make the artificial drama of opera real, they increasingly began to be received as, even intended as, intentionally reactionary spectacles that defended the so-called glory of great art against the influx of this new director's theater. Zeffirelli said, quote, they destroyed the tradition of musical culture. They said, we can't have Tosca done the same way, but the audience loves it. The audience did indeed uh, love a series of spectacles he did at the Met in the 1980s, uh, a sort of greed is good Reagan era parade of glitz and glamour, a Tosca in which entire Roman churches were recreated on the cavernous stage, a Turandot that is a hideous gilded yellow face pantomime where the heroine wears an almost indescribable hat that looks like a chandelier made of thousands of glittery blue ping pong balls, and the final scene takes place in what looks like the world's largest, tackiest, and most offensively decorated Chinese restaurant. I am now sending you a picture of the set of the final scene of Zeffirelli's Turandot for you to respond to for our wonderful audience. Oh, incredible. And here is the, uh, here's the ping pong balls hat for you, uh, which you can also see some of the uh, quite offensive race makeup. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Um, and so the staging was hated by critics, but adored by audiences, uh, including Donald and Ivanka Trump, who attended the premiere. Um, the New York Times wrote, quote, Mr. Zeffirelli, master of gigantic effects, does his best to bring new meaning to the concept of extravagance. At times, the effect threatens to resemble an old-fashioned Radio City music hall extravaganza gone berserk. No matter. The audience gasps at the lavishness and cheers the audacity. They clearly feel they are getting their money's worth. The Met referred to these productions as, quote, singer-proof, which is part of the problem. The sets sell tickets and can be a big attraction for a while, but ultimately this is a losing artistic proposition and helps seal the art form's grave. If singers get lost in these productions, so be it. Here is opera as an easily recreatable series of grand spectacles, productions that are intended to present these works as museum pieces rather than living theater. It does look like uh, maybe the Trump's got some interior design tips from him. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, certainly. Uh, Vice versa, I think. It goes both ways. Um, This reactionary turn was accompanied by Zeffirelli's increasingly conservative political tendencies. Having long been a member of Italy's ruling Christian Democracy Party, he joined Berlusconi's Forza Italia in 1994 and served two terms as a senator, railing against abortion rights and adopting a hard socially conservative line. He adopted his two live-in assistants as sons and remained closeted even as he worked for and with a political party that agitated against gay rights. In uh, 1993, he called for abortion to be made a capital crime, Um, and Forza Italia would regularly partner with, in government coalition, neo-fascist political parties, including the party run by Mussolini's granddaughter, Alessandra. So here he was joining in formal political coalition with the fascists he had fought in his youth. Yeah. A failed Met production of Bizet's Carmen in 1997 goes a long way to show the working methods of the calcified older Zeffirelli. The Car- Carmen who is cast was the extraordinary German mezzo Waltraud Meyer, who's better known for his her work in Wagner. Um, Zeffirelli was brought in as a replacement director and brought his usual intellectual rigor to the piece. Um, quote, it's a complex opera, he's quoted as saying in Johanna Fiedler's book, Molcho Atichato, about the 90s at the Met. Um, it says in the score that there are seven horses. Seven are needed and seven there will be. End quote. <laughs> okay. So Meyer and Zeffirelli were at 
odds and ends from the beginning of rehearsal. Uh, it was her first time singing the role, and Zeffirelli was convinced that she looked wrong. Um, an example from Fiedler's book about just how uh, specific he could be. Um, Carmen is an opera set in Spain and depicts uh, Romani people, including the main character. Um, and so he demanded, uh, using a slur word, quote unquote, real Romani people, um, and made one of the Met's artistic administrator uh, bring in people for an audition from the Yellow Pages section for fortune tellers. Jesus Christ. Um, he was focused on directing the chorus and ignored the principals, um, would call chorus members uh, old and fat in rehearsal. And again, these are professional singing artists, uh, like orchestra musicians. Um, and because he was convinced that Valtrad Meyer looked wrong for the title role, he would skip the rehearsals where he was supposed to direct her. Um, now, the reviews ended up savaging both the production and Meyer. Um, she told the journalist Justin Davidson uh, when asked why she thought people didn't like her um, interpretation of Carmen, quote, my Carmen is a woman of total independence, total refusal to compromise, no fear of anything but her own emotions. I think in a more sober production, it would be clear what I am doing. Um, and anyone who wants to um, understand the sort of glory of Valtraud Meyer's art, I'll put a link to um, her in a Patricia Rowe production of Tristan and Isolde in the show notes. She's a, a really, really remarkable singing artist and, you trust her here. Um, now, Davidson went to ask um, the Met if he could get Zeffirelli's response to this quote. Um, and so uh, Zeffirelli responded thusly, quote, this is not a show for a single singer. It's a show for the Met. It is not possible to do a better Carmen. Um, he then went on to talk about the next singer who was going to take on the role, uh, the American singer Denise Graves, uh, who is a black mezzo-soprano. Um, another great singing artist. Um, I'm now going to quote what he said about Denise Graves in his production. Um, and in this quote, there are um, a couple of, I mean, it's a very racist quote in many ways. Quote, uh, Denise is more animal, more gypsy. It's something that comes out of the fact that she's black. What I'm saying is not racist. Graves is a great artist and each one is an interpretation that derives from her own culture. Blacks have this fierce quality. And since Meyer was criticized for being too Teutonic, I see that Americans want something more savage. Once I understood that she was going to do it her way, I didn't even bother going to rehearsal she was in. She began by disobeying, by leaving her hair red instead of dyeing it black, as I asked. She looked like a lady from Munich at a costume ball. If she wants to do the television broadcast, she will have to apologize to me first. You always know when someone starts their apology with, uh, I'm not being racist. So what's going to come in is not going to be very I'm good. not being racist. I'm just saying that um, black singers are savage. Uh, and yeah. that comes from their culture. <laughs> it's outrageous. And it's also, I mean, it, the, it, it's so racist. And it's also really kind of wrong about, I mean, um, there's no universe in which you would not say that Valtraud Meyer is a passionate stage performer. I mean, it's just such a, it's like you're, he's trying to get out of an artistic failure and then does so by being racist against this other person who wasn't even involved in the whole situation. Like it's, yeah. it's so vile. Zeffirelli's late career became uh, filled with increasingly rare stage spectacles and increasingly more often bomb throwing. Um, his last Met production was an infamous 1998 production of La Traviata. And if we recall his idea for Traviata with Callas uh, 40 years earlier, 
using moving sets to convey the movement of the main character's life in a cinematic way, uh, then here was a production that used moving sets mostly to convey the fact that there were big sets that were moving. Um, the most infamous scene from this production involved the lead character having to sing her third act aria while descending an enormous staircase on a moving set piece that was slowly rising to reveal the downstairs of a two-story house on stage so she could die in a different room. <laughs> okay. There were dancing cows. I mean, this was a this was dead in the water. Um, yeah. And it ended up being replaced by a director's theater style traviata on this white stage to the red dress that was really um, ironically much more similar to this idea of um, conveying something of the real um, emotional lives of these characters than making someone like walk down a staircase on a moving set while singing an aria just so that they can die in a different room. Yeah. Um, in 2009, uh, when the Met replaced the first of its Zeffirelli productions, the Tosca, some conservative audiences hated the new production. Um, to be fair, the new production wasn't the best thing I've ever seen, but it at least attempted to say something interesting about the piece and its characters. Without having seen the new production, Zeffirelli gave an interview to the New York Times in which he referred to it as, quote, a crime and encouraged audiences to boo it. Um, it's, it comforts and encourages me, he said, giving confirmation that what I fight for, I still fight for after so many years in the theater. And he called the director in this interview, quote, third rate, unquote. Now, the director of this new production, uh, Luke Bundy, summed up Zeffirelli's approach and its problems quite well in his response interview. Quote, well, if I'm a third rate director, he's the second assistant to Visconti. I learned to be a director. He didn't invent Puccini. He's only Zeffirelli. I'm only Luke Bondi. More not. In other words, in a living art form, not only would new works be constantly premiered and enjoyed, but older works would be constantly reconceived, reinterpreted, and reimagined by new generations. To pretend that there is any single true Tosca before interpretation or performance is as stupid as pretending there's a single true Hamlet. But Zeffirelli, with his expensive sets and hidebound conservatism, helped convince a generation of opera goers that his was the only way. And so now we see this in um, fun online communities like Against Modern Opera Productions, which is a Facebook group that's like truly, truly toxic, um, where um, basically people you know, they put up pictures of director's theater productions and talk about how you can't recognize any of the characters. And it's the kind of place where when anyone has sexual assault allegations, they start liking them more because that's how you demonstrate that you're not one of the sort of woke cultural Marxist, yeah. et cetera. Um, so now we go back to those three facets of opera queendom I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. First, shame and a sort of old-fashioned kind of faggotry. Second, music-dominating language and text. And third, necrophiliac projection. Zeffirelli, a man who didn't come out until he was in his 70s and who ran interference for the Catholic Church and the Italian Rite while allegedly drunkenly assaulting his male actors, who angrily rejected the idea of intelligent interpretation, and who ended up making operas into museums of themselves, um, we have this sort of embodiment of all of these things. With a glitzy new production of Rigoletto for an opera house in the Emirates in preparation, Franco Zeffirelli died in Rome in 2019 at the age of 96. Wayne Kestenbaum, uh, who we quoted a lot at the beginning of the show, said that despite the shows having been critically mocked, quote, if you want to have a sense of what grand opera means, you need to have seen at least one Zeffirelli production. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making bad gays. 
If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and T-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode, we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did you know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that when a storm prevented James the Sixth and First from marrying his bride, he blamed not the weather, but witches? <laughs> For the full story, pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com slash book. Well, thanks, Ben, for a um, fascinating story of what seems to be quite a repellent human being. Um, I guess I guess a, a starting point. Well, actually, one thing I'm one, one thing I'm interested in is um, this: why he came, like not why he came out so late, but why he came out at all, given his politics, his general attitude. What was it that watching was the impetus, and what was the manner of his coming out, um, and how 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 did that sort of change his public profile? Well, um, I'm not actually sure why he came out. Um, I know he came out in an interview in the mid-1990s. I think it was also, it's the style of like upper class being gay where you never had to be closeted to be closeted. And I think at a certain point in the mid-90s, you just couldn't get away with that anymore. So he, so he sort of had to. Um, but he never liked the word gay. He liked the word homosexual, uh, which again, I think is part of the same um part of this same kind of um, older version of uh, older version of uh, homosexuality that he was kind of, if not stuck in, then at least kind of uh, maintained. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like not even necessarily like a a rejection of liberation politics as a sort of, um, positive stance that he took were more just that he he came of age and developed his sort of socio-sexual identity in a time you know well before that exists as a concept and uh, yeah oh certainly but then i think it also i think he then ended he did end up rejecting liberation politics um quite explicitly oh i'm not i'm not surprised yeah um yeah yeah for for sure I mean, I guess that 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 um, rejection of that sort of politics obviously fits in with his politics throughout most of his life, if not in his perhaps early twenties. Um, the the uh, I'm interested as someone with like very little knowledge of opera. I'm always struck by how many people with quite what I would describe as good politics, maybe you know, maybe sort of like liberation politics, left wing politics, um, are so taken with a form. Which the culturally, like around it, seems to have so much react, so much, so much, so many, so much reactionary politics, and I think that really comes out in your description of him talking about race and stuff, and that those were those racist attitudes that he held accepted, tolerated within the opera world. Was, did people turn a blind eye to it, or people did people do people embrace that politics? And how does race? And this is a very big question, but how does how does that sort of racism uh, operate within the opera world 
I mean, that's such a huge question. Um, uh, opera certainly has fucked up uh, many fucked up politics. Um, like any uh, older art form, in addition to attracting people who uh, like it, it also attracts people who like it primarily as a way of emblematizing their own reaction, right? So yeah. you could say the same thing about Golden Age Dutch painting, right? There are some people who love Golden Age Dutch painting, and there are some people who don't actually give a shit about Golden Age Dutch painting, but they just like the fact that it's old because it's a way of proving that they're a reactionary because they like something old. Um, yeah, like sort of reject modernism, reject modernity, embrace Reject tradition. modernity, embrace tradition, exactly. Um, the other component of that, though, um, in terms of uh, when you're talking about racist and misogynist attitudes in the in the business and in the form um that's something that i would say even on the progressive side supposedly progressive side of these artistic debates on which zeffirelli was on the reactionary side um this is still a form that is just beginning a long overdue reckoning about all of this stuff um and while on the one hand, uh, there have been a number of quite famous black singers, um, including Leontine Price, who was the Aida in that, uh, sorry, it was the um, Cleopatra in that production of Antony and Cleopatra, uh, Jesse Norman, who we mentioned earlier on this, on this show, um, Denise Graves, um, today sopranos like Latanya Moore or Angel Blue, Golda Schultz, Janai Brugger. Um, many, many great black artists who have made an enormous contribution to the form. Uh, there are no operas by black composers uh, that are regularly uh, performed. Um, the Met performed its first ever opera by a black composer to open this season. Um, there are very, very few black conductors. There are very, very few black stage directors. Um, and black singers often find themselves um, confined to a narrower set of roles um, and it, with, I mean, rarely are the attitudes in that um, Zeffirelli quote about Denise Graves expressed with that degree of openness anymore in public, but behind closed doors and in casting decisions, casting decisions that are made, um, I think you definitely see assumptions about what kinds of characters people can portray or not. Um, race makeup is also something that is leaving opera now. The Met did its first ever blackface-less production of Otello in, I believe, 2016. Um, Jesus. The operas like Madame Butterfly um, are still regularly performed in full race makeup, um, in productions that are full of um, offensive cultural stereotype. Um, and the reaction to this um, has become identified with, or rather the resistance to these changes um, has identified itself with the kind of traditionalism that Zeffirelli represents um, and has sort of turned him into the face of reaction inside the art form. Uh, yeah. So for example, a couple of years ago, um, Aida is a, is a very often performed Verdi opera. It was commissioned by actually the Egyptian government um, but it contains, it's about, you know, a, a Nubian princess being kidnapped by Egyptians. And I think at its core, it's actually a, a, a 
story about uh, why prejudice is bad and war is bad and empire is bad. Uh, but it's often presented as this kind of glitzy, um, you know, spectacle with a lot of, you know, the 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 lead soprano until recently was almost always um, depicted in blackface. Um, there are these sort of big, uh, you know, walk like an Egyptian style tableaus and sphinxes and crap everywhere. Um, and uh, uh, the Opera House in Paris um, did a production of Aida by a young uh director in which the whole thing took place in a 19th century European ethnological museum. And Aida was sung from off stage, but was portrayed on stage by a puppet. Um, and I thought it was one of the best and most interesting and strongest productions of Aida I had ever seen. Um, and actually by addressing the thing that the piece was actually about, um, ended up sort of making it, it made it into a work of art that could have something to say again. Um, but the reaction to this in France was so negative that this is never going to be um, done again. The production's being mothballed. Yeah. And so th- there's a there's a um, there's a sense in which the traditional uh, the, the traditional production has become the emblem of this kind of reaction. Now that being said, what I certainly don't want to give the impression of is that everyone who works in opera on the progressive side. Uh, of that particular cultural divide is a committed anti-racist or a committed anti-sexist. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I think you find a lot of these attitudes, unfortunately, everywhere. Um, but um, certainly, um, certainly among people who have turned the idea of uh, doing it exactly as it quote unquote should be done um, into a kind of emblem. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I guess related to that as well is like something about, um, I mean, we mentioned it a little bit before, but you described it as like the, this, this sort of mode of certain sort of gay men in creative industries uh, approach towards women in those industries as being like playing with Barbie dolls. Um, yeah, which um, which I think is quite a, quite an interesting, well, yeah, quite an accurate way of putting it in terms of um, uh, the women become not artists in themselves, but as as um, as tools, as um, as a form in which the men can mould. Um, do you think that? Uh, do you think that you, is this something that sort of also um, exists or continues within audiences? And I'm not just speaking about opera here now, but just about this relationship between gay men and especially gay white men, and um, but although not entirely, and and uh, female performers um, and women. Um, like in pop culture as well. Um, do you think there's different, do you think that's, do you think this aspect of playing with Barbie dolls is the, 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 the extent of it? Or do you think there's more complex modes as well uh, uh, in terms of, um, I think there's more complex modes of identification and, and of, um, yeah, identification and the sort of fan relationship. And I also think that a lot of these performers are, are, potentially more aware of this than we sometimes give them credit for and sort of know how to use it to their advantage. Um, but in the case of Zeffirelli, it's really extreme. I mean, so, so Callus dies in the late 1970s and in 2002, Zeffirelli's last film is called Callus Forever. And he hires Fanny Ardant to play a dying Maria Callas trying to make one last movie of Bizet's Carmen. And it's really like, it's really like pure necrophilia. Yeah, and pure sort of manipulation. And do you think that relationship towards towards um, towards women, especially Carla Carlos, is is linked 
specifically towards his hom- homosexuality, or is this just an attitude of, of, of misogyny that's that exists within a lot of men within those creative communities? I think there's a lot of men within these creative communities that have these attitudes, but I think there is a kind of gay version of it um, in which it's disguised as this kind of celebration or love, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. I do think that's how how you conceive of yourself as being on these women's side or as being their sort of greatest ally, um, while instead you're, you know, constantly commenting on their weight or what Yeah, yeah. And I think also, even within the, the sort of communities of, of fans or appreciators of these sort of, of, of um, this, just not just in, in musicals, but in theatre, like the golden age of Hollywood or within um, pop music, for example, like this, people can flip between the modes. You know, I think, I think the, for example, pre sort of the era of liberation politics, when men, gay men identified with divas and with figures such as Judy Garland, there is a genuine, sense of identification with some of the intense emotions and tragedies of those lives lived in public of of what they can be but that could also at the same time slip into and and out of these these other other relations of uh, instrumentalizing women and especially women's pain um as just a sort of um uh story or or um what's what augmentation towards like their them as gay men being the central characters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there's this, uh, I'll give an example here. Um, because I think one thing that happens, especially in the operatic version of this is that the, the speed with which these women get turned on, uh, can be really frightening. Um, there was a soprano by the name of Deborah Voigt, um, who was beloved in the 1990s by the kind of queer fan community, um, was a really, really fantastic kind of Wagner and, and Strauss singer, um, and ended up infamously losing a role at Covent Garden because uh, she didn't fit into the director's concept of a little black dress. She was a larger woman and um, ended up getting bariatric surgery um, in her early 40s. Um, as she reached her mid fifties, um, her voice began to change and she ended up ending her performing career, which is not an uncommon thing to have happen. Um, but the speed with which these certain fan communities turned on her, um, and began to almost gleefully document you know, her like losing performances or to like, it became a competition of who could hate her the most. Um, and it's just, it's so fucked up because, you know, these are all human people trying their best, um, and, uh, also trying to make a living. Um, and they don't owe, like nothing is owed to the fan, right? They, They don't owe us their voices. They don't owe us anything at all. Um, we should be happy that we get any, you know, like it's, it's just, yeah. Uh, but the speed with which you can turn on someone, um, I think really points to the extent to which it's really kind of about a certain kind of power and control and doesn't actually celebrate, um, the women involved in any way. Yeah. And I think it's telling as well that with the, in Zeffirelli's case, as is often the case, I think with a lot of this, uh, gay male misogyny towards women who 
the men supposedly idolize is that it, it um it emerges through like a very like embodied like a, a bodily critique it's to do with their physicality that 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 perhaps there's a, a sense where because these men don't see themselves as part of the uh like a sexualization of these women's bodies although they often are this this sort of fat phobia that comes through is somehow seen as like oh I, it's not because I, about sexual desire it's about something else but actually the fat phobia is is just as much a form of um male misogynist um uh you know bodily control um as as sexualized versions coming of of misogyny coming from straight men Oh, absolutely, um, and the and again, there's this there's this uh, perception that opera is somehow really friendly to bigger performers because yeah, there's jokes about it. Um, but really, the stories that a lot of people have, uh, like recently, there was someone um, who was working at uh, in artistic administration at the Met um, who ended up leaving that job, thankfully, after there were like stories produced that she, you know, because then this is someone who is for young singers in the United States, really in a position of terrifying power and influence, but would literally go up to people at auditions and say, like, we didn't hire you because you need to lose 50 pounds or, or you know, um, comment on what people were eating um, or say, you know, no one needs to see your shoulders if they look like that, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so this is, I think it's, it's really rife with this stuff, um, this world. And it, and it really, I mean, like, these other kind of forms that involve an intense, a combination of artistic excellence and an intense kind of technical perfection, you know, things like ballet. Um, and, you know, like, I think it's just something about those art forms and the cultures that develop around them can be really, really um, horrifying uh, when, when left unchecked. Um, and I think that there's long overdue reckonings that are happening right now um, that, that hopefully will, uh, they they can't make change quickly enough. Yeah, I mean the I mean, fat again, phobia, and, and and again the the like it's the fat phobia. It's the you know black singers are great, but only if they sing the following six roles. Um, it's you know we can have black singers, but a black conductor or a black stage director or God forbid a black composer would be going too far. Yeah, yeah. you know like all of this like all of this stuff together, really. Yeah. I think that the, 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 there's an interesting point there as well, which is where fat phobia um, combines with this um, this mode of this sort of tragic tragic uh, woman whose whose life is a model for for gay men to sort of think and feel about themselves. Which is that fat like that that like women being bigger is regarded as a tragedy in itself. That they, that you know that like oh they. You know, you get the same film stars that they were beautiful and thin, and part of the tragedy of their life, alongside their divorces and their, you know, substance abuse issues, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is oh, and then right the Liz Taylor thing on weight as if this is a this is a great tra- tra- tragic yeah, moment Liz, in their life. Yeah, the, the Liz Taylor thing, right? You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, which is something that should be combated. Absolutely. It is. It's one of the real sort of uh, horrifying uh, elements of this kind of uh, gay uh, fan service culture. Yeah. Thing. Um, there's a really fascinating interview um, with uh, Liza Minnelli from 1973 uh, from Rolling Stone that I was reading the other week. And it was it was just fascinating to read how much both she and her mother were aware 
of exactly how fucked up this relationship was, but also understood how to perform it in order to continue surviving in their career. Um, anyway, it's a big topic. I, I think we'll keep coming back to. Yeah. So Ben, if, um, if people would like to know more about this subject, uh, about Zeffirelli or, um, uh, and opera, for example, <laughs> um, what are some of the sources you used uh, for this episode? Well, there's uh, Wayne Kestenbaum's magisterial book about the phenomenon of the opera queen, the queen's throat, opera, homosexuality, and the mystery of desire. Um, there's Zeffirelli's own autobiography um, and a book by Johanna Fiedler called Molto Agitato, The Mayhem Behind the Music at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, although Fiedler's book has one major uh, out-of-date component. When she was writing it, she was not able to confirm allegations of assault against the conductor, James Levine, and dismisses them, um, those have since been confirmed. Um, there's also a whole rash of uh, newspaper articles, mostly from the New York Times, and those are all linked in the show notes. I won't, I won't uh, go through all of them, but uh, discussing some of the different kind of productions and uh, reviews. Uh, and then YouTube is one of the greatest uh, resources for opera ever created. Uh, if you type any name that you heard on this show into YouTube, you'll be able to find um, some performances and to be able to kind of start exploring this art form. Uh, despite all of the uh, ways that I've talked about uh, it, we've talked about all of its worst aspects today. Um, but there is, I think, still something that, I mean, there's something that keeps me going back. Um, and so if people want to start exploring that, um, YouTube's a really great place. Great. Thank you. Well, you've been listening to Bad Gaze. Um, you can find us at, online uh, at com or on Twitter or Instagram at badgazepod. You can find me online on Twitter at hulemi or my newsletter hugh.substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. Until next week, bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 bad,